Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And Rory, we have some moderately exciting news, and that's another live show, because when we released our Palladium show tickets... Wait a second, I thought it was going to be something about your bicycle again. Rory, let me do the marketing and oh, sorry, advertising sorry, sorry. of our sorry. big event. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not going to... I, I might bring my. I might bring my bike... To the live event, or I might bring something else beginning with B. Who knows? Who knows? So when we released the Palladium show tickets last month, they sold out. Two live shows sold out in seven minutes. And I did say to them, we should have been playing Wembley, but no, did they listen? Did they help? Anyway, when we somebody told me that they clicked on the link and there was an online queue of over three and a half thousand people. So how do we try to give access to those people, lo and behold, in comes a phone call from the Royal Albert Hall saying, would we like to do a live show on Tuesday, December the 13th? So listen, people, we have just over a month for you to help us fill, big ask, help us fill the Albert Hall on the evening of Tuesday, December the 13th. And before you start thinking you're going to have to get a mortgage, Tickets start at £22. And they go up a bit, but, you know, there'll be a lot for 22 quid. And and I think, am I right in saying some pretty famous people have played the Royal Albert Hall? <laughs> the Beatles and people? Uh, Cheeky Chappie. Has Cheeky Chappie ever been there? Winston Churchill, Albert Einstein. Oh, wow. Exhibition bout by Muhammad Ali. The Queen has been there every single year of her reign for the, um, the November the 11th, I imagine. The King Charles did his first uh, last week. So we're going to do our usual thing of a pre-sale for members of The Rest is Politics Plus. That will be at 9 a.m. on Thursday. That's 9 a.m. Thursday, 17th of November. Members of The Rest is Politics Plus will get early access to the ticket link. And if you want to take advantage of that opportunity, you can sign up at therestispolitics.com. And then general sale the following day, that's this Friday, 18th of November at 9 a.m. We'll put the ticket link in the podcast description. We'll tweet it from the Rest is Politics Twitter account at bang on 9 a.m. Friday. So it would be lovely to see you if you can get along to the Royal Albert Hall on the evening of Tuesday, December 13th. It's going to be sort of like Alistair and my Christmas panto. And for those of you who haven't seen us, seen us in the, uh, in the Winter Garden at Blackpool or uh, uh, what we did in Leicester Square, we'll try to make it a little bit fun bit of a Christmas theme. And as, as Alistair says, he'll try to bring along one of his two bees with him. And we may, we may, but why don't we also, Rory, why don't we sort of say that we'll maybe just for a minute, we'll agree, we'll disagree disagreeably. Should we try, should we aim for that? Or should, do you want to we, stay with we, the agreeable? We're definitely, we're definitely able to do that. We're definitely able to do that. <laughs> 
particularly if you start setting me up against your bicycle again. Anyway, now on, on with the show. Um, mm-hmm. What have you been thinking about this week? Thinking ahead to Thursday and the, uh, is it a budget, economic statement, fiscal event? I don't know what they call it these days. Uh, but why don't we kick off with the United States? Because I think that the midterms, you were saying a couple of weeks ago, these polls are all over the place. Nobody seems to know. There's been quite a lot of coverage in the States of the extent to which polls are being used almost like campaign vehicles. And this whole thing about the red wave, and of course it's confusing because in, in Britain, Labour are red, Tories are blue. In America, the Democrats are blue and the Republicans are red. But the, the so-called red wave simply has not materialised despite the polls, many of the polls pointing in that direction. And I've got to say, Rory, I have thoroughly enjoyed seeing Joe Biden with a huge spring in his step, not least as he arrived to meet President Z at the um, G20 in Indonesia, but also seeing Donald Trump, even Donald Trump looking a little bit deflated, and even Donald Trump perhaps confronting the reality that an awful lot of Americans feel like most Brits, namely that the, the less we see of him in the future, the better. Really amazing, isn't it? It's an incredible turnaround. Um, I mean, there's so much stuff to unpick here. One of the things that, that maybe to touch on very briefly is we talk a lot about the way in which in modern politics, media uh, affects it. And you talk a lot about the influence of the right-wing media in Britain. But of course, in the United States, that the big equivalent of that is, of course, Fox News and the way in which Fox News essentially created and fostered Trump. And the very strong signs now that Fox News are now turning away from Trump towards DeSantis. Which sort of underlines my point, and one of the reasons I so object to the way that the Murdoch media operate. Uh, I think it's possible to make the case that without Murdoch, and without Twitter, and without Breitbart, without these kind of very right-wing media organizations, that Trump would never have been there in the first place. So Trump is held accountable, he gets kicked out of office, and yet... Murdoch feels he can just sort of say, oh, well, I backed him, but now he's gone. Now I'll back somebody else. And I hope American people will kind of wake up to that. Well, well, one of the weird things about this, which, which I'd love to sort of your, your reaction on as somebody who's both been at the other side in media and also someone who's worked in the central government, is the odd dance that these companies do. Because on the one hand, they're steering the conversation. On the other hand, they're following because they're desperately trying to hold on to readers, desperately trying to shore up their position. So the truth is that I think that Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, began to turn against Trump in about 2020. But his son, Lachlan, who was running things, who's to his right, kept strong Trump support. And they then had a panic after January 6th when they began losing viewers to new right-wing, much of it online media in the United States. Mm -hmm. And Fox deliberately decided to move further to the right, further pro-Trump, to kill their competition from the right. And it's only now that they've killed their competition on the right that they're comfortable moving back away from Trump, back towards DeSantis. So it's a sort of odd dance, isn't it? Mm. On the one hand, these editors and owners set the agenda. On the other hand, they're terrified about losing their their viewers or their listeners, or their readers, and they mm. keep pitching around, chasing the competition. Yeah. But I, what, what, what I kind of object to is, is the way that they, the rest of the media kind of project them almost like they're independent spectator slash players within the political debate. But you call it a dance, and I'm afraid it is a dance because, you know, if you, you go back to my, my diaries, and I talked recently about Bruce Grocott, who was absolutely Tony's parliamentary private secretary. He was really against us going to Australia 
to that conference we did in opposition at Mur- with all Murdoch's editors. And it was part of a dance. We were basically, we were trying to neutralize them. We were trying, I remember Tony saying, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a rabid dog in the corner of the room, you want to keep it in the corner of the room. And I think what's happened with Trump, um, and, you know, I think to us and to a lot of British people, I think we look at Trump, and even of having had the experience of Johnson, we look at Trump and just think, well, he, he revolts and repels most British people, I think. And so we can't quite understand why there are so many people who, who still kind of believe and fall on every word that he says. But I think that what Murdoch is doing, and I think you're right about the relationship between father and son. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is getting on. Lachlan, it seems to me, has, you know, won the succession battle uh, against his siblings. He is probably even to the right of Rupert Murdoch. And the relationships that get built up, you know, I don't think they're real relationships. They're, they tend to be transactional, political, professional relationships. But you end up with a real worry that you're losing your own credibility because you're attaching yourself to somebody, a political figure whose, decre- whose credibility is clearly on the wane. I think Trump, people talked a lot about the economy, they talked a lot about abortion. I think Trump was a big driver of the Democratic vote in, this, um, in these midterms. Uh, particularly, I, I get the sense amongst the young. People just assume that all these young people vote because of abortion. I think a lot of it was, you know, Biden was giving them the message, if you really want to save the future of this democracy, we've basically got to expel Trump from our politics. So this media democracy dance, um, I, I felt it even during the Brexit debate. You'd find that newspapers would, for example, endorse Theresa May's Brexit policy, and then a few months later, ditch it and go very aggressively, this is right-wing media, very aggressively pro-ERG and start attacking her policies. Mm, mm. And I think this is part of a, this, this odd thing that I'm sort of trying to get at, which is that the editors are more insecure than you would have thought, that it's not necessarily that they have a clear idea of what it is they believe and are pushing for. It's more that they're desperately trying to sense what their readers want, what their competition wants, and what they're supposed to be saying about these things. Well, because because when Neil Kinnock lost to John Major and the son had run that famous front page, well, the last person to leave the country, please put the light out, they fed themselves this narrative, I think, that they decide who wins and loses elections. Now, I don't think that's the case. I think in 1997, Murdoch ordered the son to back us because they'd worked out that we were going to win. We were going to win whatever they threw at us. And I'll tell you something I really like about Joe Biden. And I'm I'm seeing something a little bit similar in Keir Starmer. I don't get the sense. I remember, when, if you remember over the whole beer gate thing, Keir Starmer photographed through a window having a pint of beer in a place yep. in Durham during lockdown. And the mail ran something like 13, 14 front pages about that story, having kind of completely ignored, you know, a lot of the crimes mm-hmm. and misdemeanors under Johnson. And although I know, because I talked to him at the time, Keir was, you know, incredibly frustrated and annoyed and angered by it. He didn't allow it inside his head in terms of the way that he was projecting himself in public. And I've noticed that about Biden. I think I've said to you before, I think Biden's great strength against Trump was he didn't let Trump inside his head. And I think for a politician who's going up against a vehement, powerful opponent like Trump with his lies, like Johnson, like the British tabloid press and and the way they influence the broadcasters as well, if you allow that inside your head, you start to make the wrong decisions. You have to stick to your own frame, your own strategic framework. And I think what I love about Biden is that, I mean, he's been written off so much. Uh, and, you know, we, we both sort of said, let, you know, I hope he doesn't 
stand in the next election. But I'm starting, I'm starting to think, you know what? He's got, he's got something very, very special, which few politicians have. And it is this extraordinary resilience and an ability when everybody's writing you off to get up off the floor and just keep going. And I thought when I saw him with Xi in, in Indonesia, he just kind of looked the part, sounded the part, on top of stuff. So I thought, I thought it was fantastic to hold on to the Senate. And even that, I mean, I think they're going to lose the House of Representatives, but for it to be as close as it is, is a really remarkable success for Biden. Yeah. So j- just quickly again, for, for listeners who haven't been following it necessarily in so much detail. So pretty miraculous in the Senate. If they manage to win Georgia, they've actually improved their position in the Senate, which is very remarkable and means that they're not as held to hostage in the Senate uh, by people like Joe Manchin. In other words, more right-wing leaning Democrat senators, which mm. is, which is very powerful and um, makes a lot of difference, of course, for things like Supreme Court nominations. But if they've lost the House of Representatives, his legislative agenda is in real trouble. Very yeah. difficult to get stuff through through both houses. Um, so we're going to be looking at new casts of characters emerging. Nancy Pelosi probably stepping down. Mm-hmm. Um, new leader going to emerge, Republican. McCarthy, yeah. Yeah, and McCarthy seems to be an interesting figure. I mean, he's got many, many very right-wing Republican views, predictable views, everything from immigration through to LGBT. But he did call out Trump on January 6th, blame him for the insurrection against Capitol, which I suppose is a, a positive move. So he's not on the full-on full on crazy edge of the Republican Party. There are 125 people, not just in the Congress, but also governors and so forth, 125 so far who won elections last week who are nonetheless election deniers, people who say that, election, that Trump won the election and they continue Amazing. to say that. So they're still, they're still around and there's still quite a lot of them in powerful positions. Which, which then brings us to this character, Ron DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis... Um, very young, 44 years old. Lovely family. Italian-American family. And, and a sort of, I mean, he's, he's part of this kind of extraordinary kind of, almost as though it's the sort of Manchurian candidate, Americans writing the script to the perfect candidate. <laughs> so comes from an immigrant background, goes to his Catholic high school, gets into Yale, becomes a baseball star. He captains the Yale baseball team, then joins the U.S. Navy, uh, having been to Harvard Law School serves in Iraq, gets a bronze star in Iraq, um, although he's, he's actually a naval, naval lawyer, comes back um, and starts running in Florida. And the story is, is pretty dramatic. I mean, he, first time he ran for governor of Florida, it was a very, very close election that was only won on a, a recount on about 30,000 votes. But this time around, he's just secured a 14-point victory, the largest victory in Florida for 40 years. And seems to be now somebody we're probably going to be talking about a great deal over the next two years because he's probably now the strongest Republican candidate for president. Well, he, and he talking of getting inside heads, he is definitely the one who has um, got inside Trump's head. I see he's, he, Trump has given him a nickname. He's now going to be he's he's known as Ron De Sanctimonious. Uh, I don't think it quite works as well as some of Trump's previous nicknames, but that's what we now call him, apparently. He was also, I think he was slightly down, although, he, yes, he got a bronze medal, but he, he was in the Special Forces and he was in his SEAL. Yeah, that's right. He was with SEAL Team A or something. Yeah, um, so yeah, SEAL exactly. Team 1, yeah. And, he was, and, and he, was part, he was part of that, um, that surge um, in Fallujah. Uh, but so he was, he was a, a legal advisor. So, but at the same time, I mean, I, I'm sure that if, if Trump is up against him, he'll say, well, if I had been there, I'd have got a gold medal, not a bronze medal. <laughs> um, I did think Trump, one of my favorite, well, I'll say favorite, there's nothing comes out of Trump's mouth that, that, that I like, but he, when he said, he sort of just captured his character so well. 
his interview just before the elections when he said, well, if it goes well, I deserve all the credit. And if it goes badly, I deserve none of the blame, which, of course, is exactly how he operates. But what's interesting, not just Murdoch, I think a lot of politicians and, of course, DeSantis, he he was this is why Trump hates him so much now. He he benefited at one stage from Trump's endorsement, and he actively sought it and now clearly sees himself as the main guy. He's seen as, by many people in the States, as much more dangerous than Trump because he has many of the same right-wing views, does a lot of very outrageous things. You know, he campaigned with his kids in MAGA shirts. He Mm. said that he was going to be, you know, that they were learning how to build the wall. He, um, I think we talked about this in the show a a few weeks ago, but he, he managed to persuade a friend of his, to put a whole series of uh, Latin American immigrants onto a plane from the Mexican-Texas border and flew mm. them to Martha's Vineyard, which is the kind of super shishi privileged home of the democratic elite, and unloaded these immigrants in the middle of this, this place. Um, I guess it would be a bit like, if you could imagine, sort of a, a very luxurious version of Islington floating off the British coast. And actually, the, the residents of Martha's Vineyard, I think, have responded relatively warmly and generously to this unexpected arrival, and they're trying to sue people. But it's this kind of very, very expensive thing, cost them nearly a million dollars to pull off this stunt. And most famously, he refused to lock down at all over COVID. In fact, he went further than that. He passed laws saying that any cruise ships or restaurants or anyone who tried to ask for vaccination were not allowed to ask for vaccination. And initially, this was very unpopular. And later, it became very popular. And he seems to have a very peculiar form of political genius. And I was, I was thinking, we keep thinking about people to interview, but I'm very interested in the, in the guy that he ran against, who's called Charlie Crist. So Charlie Crist is, is, is a man who was the Republican governor uh, of Florida and then essentially was won over by Obama and decided mm. the Republican Party was racist, joined the Democratic Party, won a very Republican Congress seat in Florida for the Democrats, so he seemed like the perfect candidate. He'd been Republican governor, very, very popular Republican governor of Florida. I think he got 63% approval ratings across party. So it seemed like he was the perfect person to take on Ron DeSantis because he had the Republican credibility. The Democrats would vote for him. He'd get moderate Republicans. He'd been anti-Trump. And he was entirely crushed. I mean, crushed by, you know, as I say, 14, 15 points this election. Mm. So if we want to understand DeSantis, maybe we should have a chat with, with Charlie Chris someday. Let's bear that in mind. And the, the other thing, of course, I mean, there's been a lot of debate about the extent to which the Roe Wade abortion judgment and Biden's very, very strong stance, stance on that. DeSantis has changed the law in his own state to, he, he brought in a bill that bans elective abortions after 15 weeks, down from 24. He's also on education. He voted against some of the federal education programs that George Bush was trying to to bring in. So he's, 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 he's way out on the right. There's no doubt about that. And I think a little bit like here, Sunak is benefiting from not being Johnson and not being Truss. But actually, when you look at Sunak at heart, there's something I think very right wing and quite dangerous there. Likewise with DeSantis, in terms of the way that we talk about him and a lot of Americans talk about him, he benefits from not being Trump. But actually is, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of Americans I talk to would say that, Trump was less dangerous in a way because he was kind of so off the reservation, whereas DeSantis is somebody who, you know, really believes what he believes. Um, he's got an A-star rating from the National Rifle Association. You don't get those. You don't get those without loving your guns. But there's a lot that's very, very interesting about his victory. So, so normally um, you'd expect the vote for a Republican candidate, a bit like votes for conservatives in Britain, to be uh, 
more towards the elder end of the spectrum and more towards whiter voters. And it's true, you know, he gets a lot of men aged 65 and up, but he also gets a very, you know, gets 61% of men aged 18 to 29 in that vote. Mm. And most striking, he managed to perform very, very well with Latino voters, 56 to 43% of Latino voters. So this is a, this is a big thing. And it, it's all to do with a seat called Miami-Dade County. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting indication of the way in which DeSantis is going to be trying to reshape Republican politics and the way in which the assumptions that the Democratic Party's had, which have traditionally, of course, been that uh, minority ethnic voters will vote for them, may not be true anymore. And talking of ratings, so you've got A plus from the National Rifle Association, and he's got a zero rating from the Human Rights Campaign, and that's related <laughs> to, his, to his, voting, his voting record on LGBTQ issues. So anyway, you're right. We are going to be talking about him. A lot. Should we talk a little bit about President Biden meeting President Xi Jinping for the first time as leaders? They know each other. They've met each other before. Um, and interesting, the, the, the mood music and the body language, and I know that's often all we have to go on at these big events where they sit and talk for three hours and then they come out and read a few talking points. Um, but I've read a very interesting analogy. We talked recently about Kevin Rudd and, and Kevin Rudd, former Australian prime minister, who's somebody who I think genuinely understands China and is, I think quite knows Xi Jinping quite well. And his analysis that I read this morning was that for all the, the warm body language, that actually Xi Jinping's red lines were still very, very clear and Taiwan was still very much one of them. Um, so although they said all the right things, and you know, I'd be very alarmed if they said we did want a nuclear war as opposed to we don't, um, it was a really interesting meeting, but I think what, what I love about these really big international summits is that you don't really find out what's gone on. I noticed that the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, had been selling it as a meeting that he hoped would last almost two hours. And I think it lasted more than three in the end, Yeah, which is very, very positive. And yeah. there was some interesting bits of sort of stage management. Apparently, the fact that Xi Jinping put Biden on his other side in the position of host rather than guest was considered mm. a real compliment. Well, it was by the it was by the way. I, t- I told you about when we did the Hong Kong handover. Oh my God! Did they make sure that we were in the <laughs> that <laughs> the we were not position. in the host position? Yeah. So Ke- Kevin Rudd's written a very very good long piece, uh, which is the lead article in Foreign Affairs um, this month uh, on mm. Xi Jinping, which is and so I mean unusual because he's an Australian Prime Minister who speaks fluent Mandarin. Yeah, absolutely. And also his his successor, uh, Albanese. Um, there's there's massive coverage in Australia for his planned meeting with Xi Jinping, because of course, you know, that relationship, we talked a, bit, a little bit with Julia Gillard about this, the Australia-China um, relationship is, has been pretty tense and is incredibly important to that part of the world. So, I mean, is, and, and I thought that his, his, again, Xi Jinping on Ukraine and on Putin, he wasn't exactly putting himself in the Putin camp. He wasn't necessarily saying the things that we might want him to, but he was definitely, I, I think Biden will have gone away from that thinking yeah. Putin will have been a bit alarmed by it. So there's, there's something very interesting in these meetings, which I'd love to get you thinking about because you, you saw them at so many different senior levels. My experience often going as a minister to, I guess I was going to G7, G8, G20 meetings, but at, at the level of a, a minister, not at the level of a head of state is that they were very, very scripted in advance. And it was very difficult to really get change. I remember trying to push very hard to move the G7 on Ebola and get more money. And there were these big meetings in Paris and we turned up, we'd be there for two days and we'd all sit around. And 
I'd get my speaking points and I'd push very hard on Ebola, but you're largely having a kind of dialogue of the deaf because all the other ministers have got their own speaking points. They've got their own civil servants around them. They've already decided what their line to take is. And the chance of my winning over six strangers around a table to put another $100 million each into Ebola if they haven't already decided to do it before they come for meeting is pretty minimal. Nevertheless, I guess sometimes things change. I'd love some thoughts on whether you've ever seen these meetings really produce something fresh and unexpected. I think they, yeah, I, I definitely have. And I think they, I think they change mainly at the bilateral level. So I, I, when you were saying that, I was, the, the one that popped into my head, in fact, several that popped into my head, when we were looking specifically for Bill Clinton to engage in relation to Northern Ireland um, and get him to do things that were really politically quite risky and quite bold, which had we not been there physically in person with him, it would have been much harder to do because you'd have been going through the usual layers. So, you know, and um, you, you have these summits. So like at the moment, G20, but, and okay, they all sit around the table and they'll all read their talking points. There'll be some engagement there. But then the bilaterals and the trilaterals, that bilateral where it's just two guys head to head, trilateral, you get three of them. I'll give you another example. The, the, the summit, the European summit that led to Wim Doisenberg being appointed head of the, Euro, of the European Central Bank. Um, that was a meeting at which I don't think that was a certain outcome when we arrived. And that came through some really brutal discussions involving uh, Tony, uh, Chirac, Cole, Wim Kok. I think the Dutch were, were the hosts and Wim Kok, I remember getting very, very angry about the way that Chirac was behaving. Um, but so, and then, and then there are other things where I can remember during the Kosovo conflict, uh, I think the Germans were in the chair of the European Council and Schroeder was therefore in a position where I think we felt and the others felt we could move a bit more. And I think he did move a bit more. So I think stuff, you know, lots of stuff gets done. Um, and I, you know, we've said before, I wouldn't underestimate the importance of these personal relationships. If I'm, if I was Rishi Sunak at this event, I really do think it matters that he gets to know in a kind of more than superficial way in all the limited time that they've got, but really tries to get a sense of the character of the people that he's dealing with. And and so it's it's impossible to quantify, but I I, I wouldn't underestimate the, the the stuff that can get done. Reputation matters, doesn't it? I mean, I was talking to senior Americans who were very very dismissive of Liz, Liz Truss and a bit terrified of her, and you got the impression that if she'd picked up the phone, they would have treated what she said with enormous skepticism and hostility. I don't think they, were, they I think, weren't terrified. They weren't terrified, Roy. I think they. Well, just, sorry, I, I don't terrified. I don't terrified in the sense she's going to explode the world, but terrified in the sense that they didn't think she was a rational, stable sensible interlocutor. I mean, everything they'd seen of her when she was foreign secretary had worried them. They hadn't liked the, the tone of those interactions at all. I think Sunak's problem are these, because there is something, they're obviously, look, they're, they're, they're all fascinated with each other. That's the other thing you have to remember about this. So when there, is a, when there is a new person on the block, they all want to suss them out. They want to work out whether they like them, whether they've got a feel for them, what they're really like. And I thought it was like, for example, I, I got a very funny message from somebody at the foreign office who he, he whatsapp me a picture of, of sunak's first family photo at one of his outings and there he was right put away at the back row at the top um kind of you know almost like the junior position and this guy in the foreign office texted me and said just said wouldn't have happened in your day question mark question mark question mark <laughs> and so you do you know part of the job of statesmanship and diplomacy is to get noticed in the way that you want to get noticed now maybe he wants to get noticed as being you know quiet unassuming 
not shouting too much. I mean, he, he had a real go at Lavrov today, but that's a kind of fairly, that's an easy hit in that audience. Um, I saw a picture of him with Modi. And again, the, you know, the body language is why, um, you know, when you see Joe Biden, he always has this ability, whether it's the hand on the back or the grabbing of the hand, he has this ability to look like he's the main guy, even with Xi Jinping, I thought. Um, whereas Sunak's got a sort of, he, he does look very, I don't know, there's something sort of very flat about him. And, and, and I think that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter in the long term, but it matters in the short term. It's also true, though, that we've seen a lot of photographs of him um, with his arm around Macron, mm. uh, with him engaging with Fumio Kishida, the Japanese premier, uh, and with Justin Trudeau. And you get a sense that, that it, it, there's a very warm smile from Trudeau in that picture. Mm. I think uh, he seems much more... Uh, he seems to be being welcomed much more into those gatherings than either Boris Johnson or Liz Truss. Oh, by, by, by a mile. I mean, I think the thing about, look, Johnson was viewed initially as quite interesting and quite colourful. But it's like Macron said, once somebody has blatantly lied to your face, it's very, very hard to, to, to get them back in and, and deal with them straight away. Um, and Truss, I think, was just seen as this sort of comic absurdity. And just as we couldn't understand how on earth has Liz Truss become prime minister, nor could they. And it said something very weird about Britain and British politics. And, you know, what Sunak has managed to do is at least, you know, not make us feel that it's utterly ridiculous that, that, that he's there. So shall we take a break and then talk about Thursday's big event? Very good. See you in a sec. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. 
And this week's podcast, again, I'm glad to say, is sponsored by my favourite newspaper, the one for which I write a diary every week, The New European. And you love it, don't you, Rory? I do. I think it's a really, it's a lovely thing. It's a really lovely thing. It's a great addition. And there's one of the things that I really like about it, I think, is particularly their cultural pages and the way in which they investigate European culture, European sport, and of course, give space to you to write your fine columns. What's your recent column about? This week's, I've written about getting a new passport. I have to say, fair play, it was pretty painless as a process, but very painful to look at this. It's not even blue, by the way, it's black. <laughs> Read the wonderful, <laughs> wonderful article by Alistair in The New European. Do, do look at it. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. Don't always agree with everything in it, but it provokes me, keeps me alert, keeps me awake, and it's definitely essential reading every week. Genuinely, the reason I love it is because so much of our media drips with this kind of nationalistic poison. Um, and I think that what the, the, the slogan is thinking without frontiers, and I think that's what it does. But it deserves your support. And if you want to do something positive about the state of our media, then support the new European with a subscription. Special offer just for the rest of his politics listeners. Best value out there, just one pound a week. You get full access to their website. That includes a digital edition of the paper each week. And if you're old-fashioned like I am, and you want the actual feel of a newspaper in your hands, you get that for just an extra one pound a week. So go to www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash T-R-I-P. Sign up today and you will not regret it. Talking of regrets, let's talk about 12 years of conservative economic mismanagement, Rory. Yes, very good. Very good. Very good. <laughs> hey, I was looking at this actually. I was, I was trying to get my head around this because I was looking at the amazing performance, actually relative performance under the Labour government, 13 years, when British relative growth was very high. And the story actually goes back, of course, to Mrs. Thatcher. Very, very dramatic change. Continued under Blair and Brown, but started with, with Margaret Thatcher. A blip with Black Wednesday. A blip with Black Wednesday. But Britain for more than 100 years, from, from 1870 to 1980, year on year collapsed in relation to Europe, Germany, and France. So in, in 1870, the average person in Britain was 25% wealthier than the average person in the United States. And by 1980, the average person in the United States was almost 50% wealthier than the average person in Britain. Mm. And that was only really turned around through the 80s and 90s into the 2000s. And we then mm. went into a very, very unusual period where for the first time in 110 years, through Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, suddenly we were in a situation in which our GDP per capita growth, so the individual output, was rising faster than any of our competitors, Japan, United States, Germany, France. And actually our productivity was second, our productivity gains year on year was second only to the United States. And our employment performance, particularly under, under you, under labor, was very, very strong. So by the time 2008 happened, Britain had been through a pretty remarkable period from, from, from 1980 through almost 30 years of extraordinary uh, transformation economically. Yeah. Well, we, I don't think anybody would argue that we've had that in the last decade or so. And I'll tell you what, I, I've, my feeling looking ahead to, to Thursday, it's obvious to me what Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are going to try to do. They're going to try essentially to present the past as a foreign country and that there's a new start with the new government. But I think it's very hard for Hunt to do that, particularly at a time when the nurses are going on strike. We're talking about going on strike. 
Um, our economic problems did not start with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. Now, I do think that there is a brilliant question, which, you know, we've got lots of questions about Liz Truss, but there was a brilliant question saying, you know, how much money does an individual have to lose us in, in order for there to be charges of misconduct in public office? So 30 billion. I mean, there's, when I saw the seven prime ministers at the Cenotaph standing there, major, as you say, you know, whatever you, whether you're Tory or Labour, you look at John Major, you think, mm, serious guy. Tony Blair, serious guy. You think, you know, Gordon Brown, really serious guy in the economy. Cameron, again, say what you like, but he kind of looked and sounded the part. Theresa May, as you say, dignity, duty, hard work. And then you see Johnson and Truss at the end of that line. And you think the damage that they have done to the country. But I think this, this problem with the health, I mean, I've been really thinking a lot about the health service in, in recent days, uh, not least because of some of the people I've been meeting. And, you know, they, they cannot get away with this trick that they're now having, you know, had austerity where public services got, you know, I'm not going to say cut to the bone, but the, the so-called fat taken out. And now Hunt comes along, his government having made so many mistakes, Brexit going so badly wrong, but austerity, I'm afraid, Rory, austerity is a big part of this story. And the idea that we now can have more austerity and they talk the talk about we're going to look after the poor, we're going to look after the vulnerable. Uh, they, they can't, how, how, where are they going to target these cuts? Where are they going to find the fat? And I'm, I am, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, Rory, but I am absolutely moving to the view, particularly when I saw Peter Thiel's Palantir in the frame for this NHS England data contract. I really am moving to the view that maybe there is a part of the conservative right that thinks that National Health Service has always been a terrible socialist experiment. The only way we're going to get rid of it is, ba- is actually to run it into the ground because it feels <laughs> like that's what's happening. No, I, I don't. Well, I think that's a bit, bit over the top. I don't think it's a conspiracy. Well, but just, we'll come back. Okay, come back on it, though. What, how, what has happened to the health service did not well, start the, to happen with trust. So, so, so the, the fundamental uh, driving of it is that uh, as we get older and as drugs get more expensive and as our demands on the health service go up, we've had years where demand on the health service, and this started from 2010 onwards, was rising by 10% a year. Mm-hmm. So even though NHS funding was protected through most of that period in real terms and actually received big injections of cash under Theresa May and under Boris Johnson, who spotted this issue, it's never been enough to keep up with the costs. Now, there's another thing we very strongly agree on, you and I, which is that the decision to leave the European Union has made it even more difficult to bring in doctors and nurses, which has created a massive labor shortage. And then the NHS was hit very, very hard and very painfully by COVID. And, and the, other, delayed- the, other, the other big factor, though, Rory, is social care. You've now got so many of the beds being filled by people who are fit to leave but have nowhere to go. A huge problem with bed blocking. And of course, one of the issues is that we've got a shortage of beds in Britain compared to places like, like Germany and France. So there are huge structural issues. But I'm afraid that what my pushback would be to say that Keir Starmer and Labour don't have an obvious policy alternative because the people who, the, the best case against austerity that was made in 2010 was that it was cheap to borrow money. So the, the answer is, People should have borrowed because interest rates were very low and therefore we could borrow and spend and there wasn't much consequence. But that's no longer true. We're now in a world of much higher global interest rates. The markets are much less comfortable with more borrowing and spending. Britain's debt is at a very high level, whether that is mismanagement or COVID or whatever's driven it, it's at a very high level. And therefore the room for maneuver 
is very limited. And, you know, with Keir Starmer 20 points ahead at some point to get to our agreeing disagreeably and balance out some of the criticisms, <laughs> I'm going to have to ask, what is he going to do? Because it's not, it's not going to be easy for him. No, it won't. And I mean, look, I see today, I've not read it, but I, I just saw on one of the news websites that he's talking today about uh, targeting some of the multinationals and dividends and, you know, wealth tax and all this sort of it. Listen, I agree with you that debate has to happen. But where we are this week, see, I, I, I think we have to go back to, you talk about Margaret Thatcher. I think one of the most effective pieces of political communication, but actually in policy terms, one of the worst pieces of political communication was when Margaret Thatcher started to compare the economy to a household budget. And then along comes David Cameron and along comes George Osborne. And they, they then moved to a different analogy, which is that, we're, we, you know, I think their phrase is we've maxed out on the credit card. And now we're into the fiscal black hole. Um, and that's the new kind of way of them describing this fiscal black hole. And all it is, it's the gap between forecasts on debt and, of course, the, OB, the Office of Budget Responsibility have finally, this was trust and quartering is one of their many big mistakes. They kept them out, brought into it. But it's the gap between the forecast national debt and what they would like it to be. Now, borrowing is one means by which that can be filled. But the other means by which you can do it, actually, this is where trust did have a point, is where is the strategy? And I agree this can go across both the main parties. Where is a kind of proper, imaginative, forward-looking strategy for growth? So I would say the black hole the fiscal black hole is the latest version of the same political choice that Hunt was part of when he was that in, in the Osborne Cameron cabinet doing austerity mark one. We should talk a lot, a lot more about growth, maybe in, in a future program. But I, I would point out, just in case listeners get the completely opposite point of view, the idea of balancing your budget is not a daft idea. And remember, Gordon Brown had famously a golden rule that he said. Mm-hmm which was basically a rule of fiscal austerity. He set a rule and put it in legislation that he was going to attempt to eliminate the current deficit over a cycle and balance the budget. And, and, that, bor- and that borrowing had to be for investment, which is a sensible approach. Exactly. So he was not actually going down the full extent of people who think there's no reason to think about balancing your budget. You can just keep borrowing and just keep pretending you can get growth the other end. So the, the, there is, there's a balance in all of these things. And I think that's why these things are much more a question of judgment than some pure bit of economic science. Um, Iran, let's, let's just, on, on closing, you, you've been thinking a bit about Iran. And I think one of the things has been the first death sentence passed against the protesters. Oh, but it's worse than that, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I saw today, there was, I can't remember where I saw it, but sort of a kind of graphic, a picture, tiny tiny headshots of young of teenagers who have been disappeared who've been locked up who've been arrested and so you've got yeah you've got the first death sentence uh linked to the protests and you know i think what's what's interesting about this is when it started so here we are we're going to the world cup england are playing iran it's in qatar there's been massive focus on the politics and geopolitics of qatar and i think it's a bit unfair the extent to which these po- footballers and football managers are sort of expected to be diplomats and politicians but england one of england's you know in england's group there's iran you know what's I, look i could be wrong about this but i i have no sense of a british foreign policy position on iran now that, I, I know they'll have one and i know that they'll be you know, making their case in, in certain fora, but I have no real sense of it because I don't really get the feeling that it's kind of top of the list of priorities. Yeah, it's a problem, isn't it? So James Cleverley has put out a statement 
saying uh, that together with partners, with European partners, um, he's sending a message. So, And the European Union have put more sanctions on them. Yeah, and, and as has the UK. So yeah, the UK has yeah. announced its own round of fresh sanctions against you know, the communications minister and the cyber police chief and people. Um, I, I, it, it is, though, very, very disturbing what's going on. And, and of course, it's been going on now for about eight weeks. It's uh, spread to about 140 cities. Very difficult to predict. I'm afraid I tend to be on the gloomy side in Iran. I've, I've mm. lived through too many situations for 30 years where people say the regime is finished and a revolution mm. is coming. And I'm afraid I still remain pretty gloomy. I mean, the other place which is almost entirely unreported and is horrifying is the um, ongoing, well, of Afghanistan, I was actually about to say, sorry, so many of these places, is, is ongoing protests in Myanmar against mm. military hunters. So mm. there you have people 3D printing guns to take on police in the streets, thousands mm. of protesters. One of the big human rights activists has just been, been killed, been executed by the government. And it's not stopping. My friends in Myanmar are out on the streets day in, day out. People are going, uh, begin to take refuge up in tribal areas, uh, in the, in the hills. And the, the police and army are just worn down by daily string of protests. Mm. Whether they can continue, I don't know, but it, it's, there's very, very odd echoes. The courage of these people, the courage of these young people in Iran as well. I'll tell you, I was, I was at a dinner last night. And I met this extraordinary guy called David Knott. Have you heard of David Knott? He's a war surgeon. Yes, yeah. He's a wonderful man, very famous man. Yeah. yeah. Tell listeners a bit about him, just in case they haven't. Well, he, I met him at a, a kind of social event, and, and he was literally yesterday just back from his fourth trip to Ukraine. And so he's a, he's a surgeon, um, but he's a surgeon who is specialized in, in war zones, and he flies out to these places and... Uh, but now what he's doing in Ukraine, he's training Ukrainian doctors in war surgery. Um, and it was extraordinary to listen to him. But he made the, the most interesting observation that he made. He was, he, I think he became very well known through the work that he did in, in Syria. He's written a book. He's founded a foundation, which his wife is, runs, which is the, the David Knott Foundation. They raise all the money to send out doctors. He goes out. But he made the point about the difference between the work that he was doing in Syria and the work that he's now doing in Ukraine. And he said what he found extraordinary about being in Ukraine up, up to yesterday was the he described it as the extraordinary optimism that is there, which really kind of hit me in the eyes of how, how do you stay optimistic when all that's going on? And he said that the, one of the reasons, and this was which he contrasted with when he was in Aleppo and places like that, was that in Ukraine, they really do feel the support from outside. They really do feel that there are countries and people and peoples and governments that are absolutely supporting them. Whereas he felt that in Syria, people felt deserted, abandoned, left behind. And as a result, their morale collapsed yeah. far more quickly. Um, yeah. But honestly, extraordinary guy. And um, I, I just think, you know, whatever we think we do that's useful with our lives, and you hear somebody like that, that he puts himself to going out to these places and training Ukrainian doctors to to do things that until recently they never imagined they would have to do. Amazing. So one one, one lovely little story about him is that he had he had lunch with the Queen, uh, the late Queen, in, in uh, I guess, eight years ago. And he was finding it very difficult to speak about his experiences. I think he'd just been in Aleppo. And so she told him to take 20 minutes to sit with the corgis and feed them biscuits, which he's always remembered her very fondly about. <laughs> which is, she's not wrong about the comfort of, uh, of our canine friends. Very good. Well, I think on, on the com comfort corgis and the amazing service of David Knott, uh, time to bring it to an end. Thank you. See you soon.